So, you know how sometimes you are, like, walking on the street or whatever, and you see someone, like, you pass them, and you're just like, what is their story? Like, what what I mean, happened yeah. to you? Well, I was that person the other night. Like, the person people were wondering about. Because I had gone to a gala this past weekend, and obviously had a ton of wine. My lift drops me off at my apartment, and I go, hmm, I think I need to get some more wine. So I walk to the little grocery store near my apartment in a full tux, like I am dressed to the nines, um, buy my box of wine, and I have my headphones in. I am toasted at this point, and... <laughs> Uh, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion comes on. And if you know me, you know that is like, one, one of the best songs ever. But you don't have to know me to know that. It's just a fact. But also, like, one of my most emotional songs. And already I was drunk. So I'm walking back to my apartment. In a tux. Carrying a box of wine. Just crying. Oh my god. (laughs) And I passed, like, multiple groups of people. (laughs) And I'm not even thinking about it. And I'm like, God, I wonder what they think my story is. Like, was I getting married and got left at the altar? Like, what happened? Honestly, that's probably one of the things that crossed their minds. But... Also, probably, dude has had too much wine. Just gonna... I mean, (laughs) also that, which was true. I literally poured one glass, drank like half of it, and woke up eight hours later, still in my suit, laying on my bed. But, um, (laughs) so, just saying, if you saw that scene, if you were in Austin and saw that, that's the story, if you were wondering. Also, you saw me. Hello. Um, well, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And what's your story? (laughs) (laughs) We all have one. We do. We all have a story. Mine's not as tragic as yours, sadly. Okay, it (laughs) it wasn't actually tragic. I was having a good time. They weren't like sad, sad tears. But they were, like, not sad. It it was just, like, you know, you cry when you're drunk. It happens. It definitely happens. It definitely happens. Which is why maybe you don't get that drunk in, like, public. Get that drunk at home. Because you can make some pretty bad, unsafe decisions. Not you. I'm just saying people in general. When you get, like, that drunk and that emotional. I was basically not in public. And I, I wasn't, honestly, that emotional. It was just one of those things of, like, oh, tears. Like, I wasn't walking, being like, <laughs> I was just, like, listening to it, a couple tears, doing my thing. I mean, I've been like that, though, the walking of the, the actual, like, <laughs> mascara down my face. Yeah, me too, I called you face. one time. <laughs> I called you one time and had you order me a lift. Still cannot understand why I didn't just order myself a lift. Um, because obviously I, I my phone had battery, but regardless... <laughs> But on that Uh, note, let's talk about today's episode, because I like this one. Well, before we talk about the episode, I'm going to talk about Patreon. Okay. Just to, you know, squeeze that little 
tidbit nugget in there. I hate the word nugget. It's a bad <laughs> word. I like it when it's talking about gold or chicken, but not information. Okay. Well, that is... <laughs> and that's Brittany's perspective. Okay, Tanya with the weather. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a morning news station. No, Patreon. So, if y'all haven't heard, Patreon it's awesome. It's a community of listeners and supporters. It's where you can find all of our murder mini episodes, our bottle talk episodes, and all the different tiers of support, including the newest Nero Diavola Cosa Nostra. Yeah, something like that. I got that right on the first try. <laughs> This is, this is um, but, me coming up with things that I can't always remember how to say, but they look pretty. So there you go. They, they, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the Nero Divola Cosa Nostra, it is our newest top tier. You get all of the benefits of the lower tiers, ranging from being the director of your own episode to social media shout outs and shout outs within the episodes themselves. Plus... You get a free tote or t-shirt of your choice with our Blood and Wine logo. It's cool. The shirts are comfy AF. They really are. The totes are, according to a friend, vomit-proof, leak-proof, so just saying. That's so gross. I I hate that you continuously bring that up. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's amazing because I feel like you would not think that of a cotton tote. And then, boom. But also, like, oh, you could use it to, I don't know, bring your lunch. Because if your soup spills, it won't leak. I don't know. Something not gross. It's a really good-sized tote, though. Like, for, like, work or grocery shopping or beach time. You know, whatevs. I've used it for all. And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. That way you'll get notifications every time we release a new episode on Tuesdays, and you'll never miss a single one of them. So click that subscribe checkmark thingy. Just do it. Just, or maybe, just hit that button. Maybe it's the word subscribe. I, I don't know, but do it. I don't know. It depends on your platform, but just do it. All the cool people are. Don't you want to be popular? Just do it. I heard Cassandra from Homeroom really likes people who hit that subscribe button, and she's still looking for a date to the winter formal, so so just all I'm going to say. Nah, fuck that. Do not uh, be bullied into any type of peer pressure, but please do subscribe. I mean, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, Tyler, you were the winner last week. Um, that seems to be this new pattern. I don't know. I don't like it. But I'm just saying, I bring the I bring great cases, and I bring great topics. And this week, I did it again. <laughs> okay. So boom. You know how? Obviously, we read a lot about murder. You know, it it happens. It's interwoven into our daily lives at this point. And you know, sometimes you just find that case that you just cannot wait to tell people about or specifically to tell me about and vice versa. I know like oftentimes Mm -hmm. I'll text you and I'll be like, did you hear about the dude who did the thing with the knife? And you're like, oh my God, the one on Baker Street? And I'm like, no, the one that was on South Henderson Road. Just kidding. I just made all of that up. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, we don't have those conversations. If we do, you're texting the wrong number and you're probably going to go to jail. You're texting strangers about knife murders. They probably don't like that. (laughs) Anyway, but it always happens where there's something we just really want to tell each other. And so, honestly, 
that's what today's episode is about. It's about that murder that I really, really need to tell you about. One that, you know, it may fit into a topic at some point in time, but we're not there yet. So right now, let's just use those ones that we've really been waiting to do. Cannot wait to tell yes. you about them. Uh, yeah. And I'm so glad you did this one, because at first I was like, Brittany, that's a cop-out. Like, that's... And then I thought about it, and I was like, no, I know exactly what I want to do. This is the perfect topic. Because... See? See? Uh, no, you were right. You're right. It's a great one. And before I tell you about the murder that I can't wait to tell you about, let me tell you about the wine that I can't wait to tell you about. Okay. Honestly, tell you about is now no longer a phrase. It doesn't sound like real words anymore. Tell you about. (laughs) (laughs) That is, I'm pretty sure that is a, like, ski resort in Colorado, but okay. Tell you about. Anyway, so this wine that I want to tell you about, this is literally, I don't know why I haven't done this wine before, because I drink this wine more than any other wine ever. Wow, that's a really long name for that wine. This is the 2018 Venus Chilinas Reserva Winemaker Selection. It's from the Rosario Estate in Central Valley, Chile. Did you just say it's called Venus Chilinas? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, pretty sure that was like the catchphrase of Xenon, but all right. Venus Chilinas. Um, this is, there's a reason this is the wine I drink more than any other wine. It's my go-to. So yes, I am cheating a little bit. This is not me tasting a new wine. But guys, this is one of those spectacular, spectacular Trader Joe's deals. It's $4.50 a bottle. And nice. this is, like, I'll drink Two Buck Chuck, but this is really good. Um, it's one, it's my absolute go-to wine. My best friend and I drink this every time we're together, like either I'll buy us a bottle or she'll bring a bottle over. Um, I drink it at home. I've taken it to book club to be the wine that we serve, like all these people. I've gifted this wine and I've even tricked my own mother after she took the exam, the intro to sommelier. I had her taste this wine and guess what the price was. And she guessed $20 a bottle, and she about shit herself when I told her it was $4. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, literally, this is a fantastic wine. I recommend it to everyone, and I had to do it on the podcast, and I'm shocked to have it at this point. Well, um, I will say, you know, you talked about how much you drink it, how much you share it with people, how much you gift it. You've never shared it with me, so (laughs) thanks for that. I've never had this wine. How many times have we been together drinking wine? countless i'll bring it i'll bring it because you have to try this wine i don't know if i want to try this wine anymore or even invite you you do and uh it's four dollars so you do if it's that good you definitely do um but i also realized i didn't say what kind it is this is a cabernet sauvignon there were lots of names in the title of this wine and i forgot to tell you it's a cab so zetus deletus so Um, this is a very rich and complex cab with bright blackberry and fig flavors. It's got some nice firm tannins and a very delicious overlay of spice that's intermixed in uh, the taste. And it's like any cab, great with meat, grilled meats, steak, burgers, all the things. It's 
literally, if you guys have not tried this wine, I will never stop talking about it. And when I go to Trader Joe's, I easily buy like four bottles at a time. Fair. I mean, it, you can buy four bottles of that for the same price as like one pretty nice one or two pretty like solid decent ones. Exactly. So um, I'm going to go ahead and get into this because I'm so excited to drink one of my faves. Uh, but what wine did you pick? So the wine that I'm drinking today is one that I've also had before. And it's one that I'm pretty sure there's a bottle left in it. I can't promise there's not less. I can't promise there's not more. That's because I've been drinking on it for a couple days and because it's a box of Boda Box wine. So for those of y'all that think, oh, boxed wine, that shit nasty, it is actually not. Some boxed wine is nasty. Looking at you, Franzia. <laughs> Although sometimes if, honestly, if you need wine and that's what you want, then love it. And I'm just being an asshole. But first off, if you're the type of person who likes to have a glass of wine after work or something, boxes are the way to go. Because if you do that with a bottle, and especially if it's reds, but whites too, and you just do like one glass, you're probably going to wind up dumping out at least a full glass of wine because the bottle will have gone bad. It's been sitting open. With a box, it stays fresh for like 30 days and... If you can't go through four bottles in 30 days, I don't know what to tell you. But <laughs> it's good wine, too. Boda Box, this one is like 20 bucks. I think Boda Box and Black Box are each around-ish that price. You're paying a little too much if you're paying 20 bucks. It should be closer to 15 to 17 Okay, that sounds right. I got this one at like my local neighborhood grocery store when I was in a tux and drunk. So I was going to pay for whatever, and it's like a little local corner store, so things are a little pricier. But even still, 20 bucks, four bottles of wine, like a $5 bottle, that's not bad. And if you can find it for like 16 $4 a bottle, basically. Ah, uh, the infamous boxed wine of the tears and the my heart will go on. That box. Yes, <laughs> that one, that box. Um... But I like Boda Box the best. I also really like Black Box. They're basically the same thing. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch of other different kinds of boxed wine. Pick your favorite. I like Boda Box the best as well. Uh, to me, Black Box is a little bit too jammy and sweet. Yeah, no, that's true. Also, they sell like little cardboard half bottles that are like 375 milliliters and I'm just saying, if you're, like, going on the boat or something, they're perfect. Have done that before. But this wine, this is the 2017 Boda Box Cabernet Sauvignon from California. And it offers aromas of black cherry and blackberry with just a touch of violet and black peppercorn. It's medium in body, and it's very supple and juicy with rich flavors of red currant black fruit compote and spice on the finish so again i'm telling you it's like a pretty complex wine it's not just a flat like oh it tastes like dark fruits it has some changingness in it it ends in the spice note it's it's a good one it's not a basic red um and this wine also partners really well with barbecued meats hearty stews pasta with marinara sauce, and I would imagine, as always, a bacon cheeseburger. 
As all cabs are. All wines, all the things. Anything's it's good true. with a bacon cheeseburger, except for like a glass of milk. I mean, okay. <laughs> glass of milk. Glass of milk, like the grossest thing ever in general. But also, listeners, I do want y'all to know, as much as we talk about bacon cheeseburgers, it's because weirdly they're in like half of the wine descriptions we read. I don't actually like bacon cheeseburgers that much. I feel like the bacon does not add that much to it. I mean, I'm not going to turn one down by any means. It's true. But I don't know. If if I'm at a restaurant and it's like the cheeseburger or the bacon cheeseburger, um, side note, if y'all, I don't know if y'all will be able to catch it, but (laughs) if you happen to hear what sounds like weird marching band music in the background, neither of us know what it is, but (laughs) we live in apartments, so someone is just jamming out to like i don't know their college fight song or something but um yeah cheeseburgers above bacon cheeseburgers um and wine above water also (laughs) this is not a cork or a cap it's a spout so so here we go All right, well, I want to drink this wine real bad. I've had a day. I need all of this in me right now. So I think cheers. Cheers. So I'm trying to think about what I think about this wine. I've tasted it so many times. This is taking a second. It's definitely, I get the spiciness and the blackberry. It's very characteristic of a cab, but I think what makes this one so unique to me is that spiciness that Mm. is just interwoven and that the tannins are not harsh. Hmm. This one is definitely one where its very first note is, you know, that kind of little bit of jammy fruity. And then you swallow it. And get the tannin, like you get that, like, I don't know, flavor of the tannins. And then it's almost like it takes a beat and then your mouth pulses and like waters for a sec. You know how that kind of tannin where like you swallow it, wait one second, and then your mouth waters? Yeah. That's how this is. And then it has that little peppery on the back of your tongue. I fucking love this wine. And I love this one. I've already like waxed poetically about it uh, for mm-hmm. enough. Um, but yeah. Okay. Well, while you wax, I will wane. Good job. Good job, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you. I My, my stand-up is at the uh, Blue Owl Coffee Shop. I will be doing a monologue for nine and a half hours in this voice. So, please be there. Donations are required. I don't want you to have that voice for nine hours. I don't want to listen to that. <laughs> oh, but that means you would actually be there to support me. Oh. All right. Well, now that we've discussed you not using that voice, we've got our wine. I'm going to tell you about this case that I've been wanting to tell you about. All right. And there are a couple of things that um, when I get to it, you'll be like, oh, that's why Brittany texted me this really random thing last night. You'll You'll get it. You'll get it. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember what you texted me last night. I was drinking Botavox, so... Well, there you go. Okay, the case that I cover in this episode is the murder... That sounded weird. The case I cover in this episode. Um, the case I'm going to tell you about... Next time on <laughs> Blood and Wine. <laughs> no, Brittany, don't open that door. 
it's ticking. Is is there is like that... a mariachi band behind the door? <laughs> and the mariachi band is ticking. Turns out it's just a metronome they have, but it's scary. Okay, the case I did is the murder of Martha Moxley. The sources I used, an article from Oxygen titled The Murder of Martha Moxley, a Timeline, by Allie Vander Hayden, an article from E! Online titled The Unrelenting Martha Moxley Murder Saga by Natalie Finn, Finn. sorry, the Martha Moxley murder, like, it's all the M's are like twisting my tongue. And then I also yeah. used the Wikipedia page for Murder of Martha Moxley. The look on your face right now is so like, huh, well, okay, tell me more. <laughs> no, I'm just casually disassociating um, at my desk. It's fine. It was just like this weird, you're like, huh, sources, alliteration. <laughs> okay, so who were the Moxleys? Dorothy was the mom. Her husband... <laughs> what? I don't know. Just the way you said that, it's like you expected me to answer. And I'm like, I don't know. It's your case. But I was like, oh, Patricia and George, they lived, um, they lived over like three streets over. They had that daughter, Christina. She was like a couple of years younger than you. Actually, though, I don't know. it's uh, Dorothy and David and their daughter is Martha, as I, you know... Pretty much making clear. Uh, I'm sorry. Sometimes, um, I don't know if you knew this, but sometimes families can have more than one child. And they do, because she had an older brother, John. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. (laughs) All right, so Dorothy, her husband David, and their two kids, Martha and John, all of them, the whole Moxley family, moved to the Greenwich neighborhood of Bellhaven in Connecticut from the Bay Area in California. They were in Piedmont, outside of San Francisco, and they moved to Connecticut in early 1974. So, cross-country move. Greenwich is this very posh town whose name is very synonymous with, with like lots of money and privilege. And we hear this a lot about Connecticut, how like everyone has money. And that's not like an across the board thing for the state, but it is mm-hmm. very synonymous with very wealthy individuals and families. So in September of 1975, Martha was 15 years old and she wrote the following in her diary. Michael jumps to conclusions. I can't be friends with Tom just because I talk to him. It doesn't mean I like him. I really have to stop going over there. And so this entry is referring to her two neighbors, Michael, who was 15, and Thomas, who was 17. So these were the Skakel brothers, and they lived next door to the Moxleys. The Kankel brothers? (laughs) Skakel. (laughs) Um, Okay, Kankel. (laughs) <laughs> so Martha's mother, Dorothy, she later said she had no idea until she read her daughter's journal that Martha was even friendly with the Skakel brothers, um, especially Tommy. And Martha wrote in her journal that Tommy put her arm around her in the car and showed some interest to her, but that Michael flirted with her friend Jackie. So mom didn't even know she was hanging out with these kids. But again, they're like her next door neighbors. Of course, they're hanging out. I think that makes sense. They're teenagers. I don't know. I didn't hang out with our next door neighbors. I did. I guess we didn't have neighbors that were like my age. 
We just had, like, our next-door neighbor, who was your age, who's really hot and babysat us. It's true. So, Martha was voted best personality when she was in middle school. She was a straight-A student, and she played basketball. And this fall, when she was 15, she had recently had her braces taken off, and so she's just, like, smiling in every picture you can see of her. She's a very fun, happy girl. So, on the evening of October 30th, 1975, Martha left her house with her friends to participate in Mischief Night. And this was something that, like, the neighborhood kids and youths would go around being, like, little shits, to be completely honest. I mean, they would ring bells, they would pull pranks, and they would, like, toilet paper houses, all this yeah. kind of shit. We didn't do that in the South. I feel it's I feel like it's, like, a New York or, like, an East Coast thing, because I think there was an episode of Hey Arnold about it. I don't know. We didn't do Mischief Night. The night of October 30th was just cold. And isn't it like the night before Thanksgiving, you go out and get drunk or something? Isn't that a thing? I mean, (laughs) I I don't know. I feel like that winds up happening because the night before Thanksgiving, you spend all of Wednesday with your family and you're like, oh my god. (laughs) Or you're like back in your hometown and you spent all the time with your family. So you go out to drink at like the local place. You're like, oh my god, there's Cassandra from... High school, we didn't go to the Winter Formal together because I didn't become a Patreon subscriber. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, so it's Mischief Night. And Martha's last stop on Mischief Night was the Skakel house. And a- according to her friends, Martha had been flirting and eventually kissed Tommy. They were um, just hanging out and... Martha was last seen falling together behind the fence with Tommy near the pool in the Skakel backyard around 9.30 p.m. Oh, that's cute. But also it's Connecticut at the end of October. It's cold. Put a coat on. It's cold. So around 2 a.m. when Martha still hadn't made it home, Dorothy called the house of Martha's best friend Sheila McGuire. Her mom woke Sheila up to see if she'd seen Martha that night And Sheila said she hadn't. So then Dorothy calls the police at 3.45 a.m. And she again called the McGuire household at 4. But Sheila still hadn't heard anything. But she she wasn't too concerned because it was mischief night. So it's like, okay, so Martha's not home. Like, whatever. She's just doing something. Well, Martha never made it home. Dorothy eventually fell asleep. But she woke up and saw that Martha's room was still empty. So she called a girl named Helen, who said she last knew that Martha had been hanging out with Tommy the previous night. Martha was last seen alive leaving the Skakel house, which is, that was actually where kids would go. They'd kind of congregate there because there wasn't a lot of parental supervision. Mm. So Dorothy went next door to look for Martha, and Michael opens the door. Michael says he doesn't know where Martha is, and Dorothy points to this, like, big camper that they have parked out, like, on the street, and she was like, is it possible that Martha, like, passed out in the camper? Is she asleep in there? And Michael's like, I don't know. Again, remember, he's, like, 15 as well. So he's like, I don't know. So he takes Dorothy over to the camper to look, but the camper's empty. The neighborhood is looking for Martha, Her friends, her mom, her mom's just called a lot of people and they're looking. And Sheila actually ends up finding Martha. 
Oh, her friend. It was around noon on Halloween day, and Martha's body was found beneath a tree in her family's backyard. How big was their backyard to fit? I mean, obviously it's big enough that it's not like, oh, you look out the window, that's the whole backyard. There's Martha. I don't know if the backyard was big, but she's this is a large tree, and I think she's on the opposite side of it. Oh, okay. So, her pants and underwear had been pulled down, but it didn't look like she had been sexually assaulted. There was a piece of the metal shaft of a golf club that was sticking out of her neck, and the other piece um, of, like, a six iron laid nearby. Oh, in her neck? It was in her neck, and she'd been repeatedly hit in the head so hard that the club broke during the attack. Martha's murder was the first murder in Greenwich in 30 years. So when police started the investigation, they traced this golf club back to the Skagel family. And Tommy was the last person that was seen with Martha on the night of the murder, and he had a pretty weak alibi. He had told detectives that he had briefly flirted with Martha outside and then saw her walking to her house, which, you know, is like 150 yards from his, at about 9.30 p.m. He's saying that's the last time he saw her, and this is really making him the prime suspect. But his yeah. but his father was not allowing access to his school and mental health records. Because, again, he's a juvenile, so they have to get parental permission. So his father's not letting him look into that. Kenneth Littleton, who had recently started working as a live-in tutor for the Skagel family, he, you know, like just hours before the murder happened, he started. A live-in tutor? Yeah, I told you. Oh, money. I'm just a live-in tutor. That's expensive. Just like, I mean, I don't know, pay someone to take your SAT and get into UCLA on like a rowing scholarship. Yeah, or just like, don't cheat. Um, I mean that too. (laughs) So, like I said, Kenneth had literally just hours before just started this position and he became a prime suspect. Tom... Thomas, Tommy, and Kenneth, they were both interviewed with a lie detector, and Tommy passed, but Kenneth didn't. They had another brother, Stephen Skakel, who was about nine years old at the time, and he told his friend Lucy Tart on the school bus the next morning, before Martha's body was found, that he woke up in the middle of the night because he heard all these screams. Lucy went home, told her mom. Her mom told the police, because again, at that point, Martha's body had been found. And um, the police reached out to Rush Skakel, who's their father, and he said that he would talk to Stephen. Then after that, the story that the police heard is that Stephen had actually been woken up by Martha's laughter as she was leaving. Uh, this is suspicious. First off, um, I mean, high five for, like, kids that go to their parents with stuff like that that know like "Mm, i should tell mom about this yeah like like nine years old i know being woken up by screams and like you tell your friend and your friend's like that's not it's something not right about that yeah like we should tell mom because i'm assuming the friend little friend was lucy right yeah i'm assuming she probably didn't know about the murder yet because she's nine and she was at school I mean, so she yeah. knew, I'm sure, that Martha was missing, but I don't know. But, oh my god. Also, I don't trust the dad. Something's, something's not quite right here. Numerous people also heard dogs barking that night um, near the Moxley home, 
all the way down to Long Island Sound, which is about 600 yards away. So lots of barking dogs. Police also talked to Martha's boyfriend, Peter Zaluka, who she'd been planning to go to the Greenleaf dance with two weeks later. He had last seen Martha on October 30th in the student center at Greenwich Academy, and they were talking about their Halloween plans together. That night, when Peter was at home, his mom asked him if he wanted to take the car to go over to Martha's, but he didn't have a license. And he had also smoked some pot earlier in the day, and he remembered feeling very freaked out by the dark and the wind. And so he just decided he was going to stay in, watch this show called The French Connection, and go to sleep. I mean, smart. Don't smoke and drive. Exactly. And he later said, if I'd only gotten in the car that night and illegally driven down to Bellhaven, maybe Martha wouldn't be dead. Or maybe I'd be dead too. I mean, yeah. In I would imagine I would imagine someone who's stoned is not um not gonna be that hard to kill if you're you know if if they're already hitting Martha hard enough to like break the golf club, don't think like a stoned sixteen year old is gonna be that hard to kill. Yeah. I don't know. Detectives gave Peter a polygraph test and um they did this with dozens of people and he passed and he was crossed off the list. So despite all of these different leads that the police had, no one was ever charged and the case went cold for decades. What um what year did this happen? 1975. 75, really? Huh, I was picturing like 2005. No, this one happened in the 70s. So over the years while this case was cold, both Tommy and Michael's alibis changed significantly for the night that Martha was murdered. In 1978, Michael was charged with drunk driving. The Skagel family worked out a deal with police so Michael could avoid prosecution, and he was to attend the Elon School in Poland Spring, Maine, which was a school that treated children with substance abuse problems. And he was there for a couple of years, And one of his classmates, Gregory Coleman, claimed that Michael said in a group therapy session that they had that he killed Martha with a golf club, but he said he'd get away with it because he was a Kennedy. Oh, that's why you texted me that. Yeah. Okay. Brittany texted me last night, would I rather marry a Kennedy or a Rockefeller? And I said both. I'm going to marry the Rockefeller. A Rockefeller doesn't believe in prenups. Divorce them. Then marry Kennedy. Then divorce them and marry a Vanderbilt. And keep all the names. It's true. Or I'm going to marry for love. But it'll be a Kennedy. But it'll be a Kennedy. Yeah, I said I'd go for a Kennedy and just hope the Kennedy curse doesn't get me. Yeah. So what's this Kennedy connection? So Michael, he's one of seven children born to Rushton Skakel and Ann Skakel. Um, her main name was Reynolds. And she actually died of brain cancer in 1973 when she was 41 years old. So she's not in the picture when all of this is happening. So Rush's younger sister, Ethel, had married Robert F. Kennedy. So Michael and Thomas are Robert F. Kennedy's nephews. First off, I fucking hate that he's this little spoiled-ass rich kid. It's like, I murdered her, but, like, my uncle will fix it. Well, yeah, he's just saying, like, oh, yeah, I I killed her, but nothing's going to happen because I'm a Kennedy. So nothing really happens for quite a while. 
And then in 1991, when a man named William Kennedy Smith, who was the son of Bobby Kennedy's sister, Jean Kennedy Smith, he was tried and acquitted for rape. And this is when a rumor started to surface that he had been present at the Skakel home on the night of Martha's murder back in 1975. And there was a clear insinuation that he might have been involved in the murder. Although this was later found out and proven to be an unfounded accusation, but it did result in a new investigation of the then cold case. So in 1995, they reopened the case and it was leaked that the Skakel family hired private investigators who re-interviewed Tommy and Michael to clear the family's name once and for all. During this interview with the private investigators, Tommy admitted that he lied to police in 1975. Previously, like I said, he had claimed that he last saw Martha around 9.30 that evening she was murdered. And now he was claiming that the two of them fooled around outside his home and she left just before 10 p.m. So... Outside? I mean, people had seen them. This... I mentioned it earlier, he just didn't say it. So his time was just a little bit different. I know, but again, I'm just saying, go inside. It's cold. You're rich. You have like four living rooms, probably. (laughs) 910 bathrooms. Go, Go to the guest library conservatory. I'm sure it's empty. Yeah. Um, but they didn't. They were outside because, you know what? I don't know. That's how you get, like, a slug in your asshole or something. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Um, so Michael also reportedly changed his story in the interview. He allegedly told the private investigator that instead of going to bed after he got home from his cousin Jimmy's house at 11 p.m., he actually was drunk decided to climb a tree outside Martha's window around midnight and masturbate. Which is a really weird thing to do because, again, it's cold, you're in a tree, you climbed a tree. How did you not fall out of the tree if you're drunk? I have so many questions. I'm... Okay, so it's the 70s. He's... This is the 15-year-old? The 17-year-old? The 15-year-old. Okay, so he's 15, he's drunk... He decides to climb a tree out her window and masturbate in, like, probably 30-degree weather. Let's say it's 30 (laughs) degrees outside, zero degrees for all you Celsius hoes out there. I mean, first off, the whiskey dick. Like, (laughs) I mean, maybe your 15-year-old hormones combat that well enough, but we'll see. Second off, the cold. Do you really want to, like, unzip your pants when it's that cold outside. <laughs> Third, you're drunk. And your coordination to climb a tree. And fourth, which honestly should be first, is don't climb into trees outside people's windows <laughs> to be a fucking peeping Tom. You're a sex offender. That's fucking weird. You're you're 15. Go buy a playgirl or... I mean, it's the 70s. You could probably, like, I don't know, buy porn at the grocery store. Or it's the 70s, so, like, I don't know, porn gets you sent to jail. I don't know. It was a weird decade. But do (laughs) something else. Do anything other than climbing a tree and masturbating while you stare at someone's window. How about go to bed under your, like, blanket and masturbate? It's warm, and you can (laughs) go to bed after. Like... (laughs) It's a win-win. Use your imagination. 
think about things. Don't climb trees. Also, what happens if he finished and it was like a big one and he fell? And then she hears that and runs outside and is like, oh my god, Sam or Tom, Tommy, that was his name. No, 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 Tommy. this is Michael. Michael. Okay. <laughs> so she comes outside, she's like, oh my god, Michael, what happened? Were you masturbating in a tree outside my window? Is your leg broken? Did you fall out of the tree? Is your dick no. still out? <laughs> I mean, basically. No. That's awful. If that's a cover story, that's the worst cover story ever. If that's true... That's worse. Don't be a fucking creep. So, that's the new stories that they told the private investigators in 1995. Then we jump forward to 1998, and Mark Furman, yes, that same Mark Furman. Oh, God. So, for those of y'all who that that name doesn't ring a bell, in 1995, he resigned from the LAPD after some old recordings of him using some really racist language surfaced during the OJ trials. Um, so... He's trash. Yeah. So this was after that. Um, in 98, he released a book called Murder in Greenwich, and it named Michael Skakel as the murderer and pointed out numerous mistakes that the police had made in investigating the case. Now, I don't really know how much cred he actually brings to it, considering he had to, like, leave the force and whatnot, but prior to all I mean, of that, I think he was a pretty good and well-known investigator. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, though, is that because of his racist and targeted behavior, any, like, expertise or, like, cred he actually had, it's it's gone. Pretty much. Because I don't know if he's right or wrong in the Martha Moxley case. Yeah. But because it's, you have to look at it through the lens of fucking everything else. Um, so he says in his book that... Michael put himself at the crime scene, and he makes admissions that only a murderer would make. Oh, he didn't say that in the book, sorry. He said that to 48 Hours, so when he was talking about his book. Another guy, Dunn, also wrote a book about the Martha Moxley case. And so even years before Dunn and Furman created, wrote their books, Greenwich Police Detectives Steve Carroll, that's not Steve Carell, unfortunately, he was not a police officer in the 90s but he is a very very sexy man today um in the almost 2020s yes yes um no so greenwich police detectives steve carroll and frank gar as well as police reporter leonard levitt they were convinced that michael was the killer so this was not information that these books like brought to light it was already something that the police were thinking So in June 1998, something that is very rarely done, a one-man grand jury was convened to review the evidence of the case. Who is this one man? It is Superior Court Judge George Thim, um, or it might be Tim. It's T-H-I-M. Could probably, probably Tim. Okay, so it's not like, I guess when I think jury, I think like rando peeps. And then, like, it's a one person. Did they just grab, like, oh, that's Larry. Um, He works in human resources down at the factory. And he is going to decide your fate today. Hi. That was him waving from the stand. (laughs) So, um, Judge Tim called more than four dozen witnesses, including Kenneth Littleton, who was granted immunity. That was the guy that was the live-in tutor. 
Um, mm-hmm. So he got immunity in exchange for his testimony. And then several of the people who claimed that Michael had talked to them about the murder at the Elon school that he went to after being arrested for drunk driving. So Greg Coleman, who I talked about earlier, one of his classmates, he said that the first words that Michael ever said to him was, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. So again, with that Kennedy shit. And then he's like, okay, well, hi, I'm Mark. No, Greg. Okay, well, hi, I'm Greg, whatever. The first words he says to him, he like steps off the bus and is like, I'm going to get away with murder. And he's like, okay, well, I'm here to show you where your locker is. So I think they just had group therapy together. So, yeah. Oh, oh I, mean, I guess that makes more sense. Also, cocky ass little shit. He's in group therapy. There's people who are like, I have substance abuse issues and I'm working through it. And he's sitting there being like, I'm going to get away with murder because I'm a Kennedy. I bet everyone in the group therapy was like, fucking can't stand you, Tommy, or whatever. Whichever Michael, one you are. Michael. Michael. <laughs> fucking can't stand you, Michael. You clearly aren't like, you, you can't get all the names. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of names going on and they're siblings they just look so similar um so greg also told the grand jury that michael made advances to martha and she rejected him and so that's when he drove her skull with a golf club so after an 18 month investigation it was decided there was enough evidence to charge michael with murder um, and at this point he's 39 years old so on january 9th 2000 an arrest warrant was issued for an unnamed juvenile in Martha Moxley's murder. Michael surrendered to authorities later that day, and he was released shortly thereafter on $500,000 bail. So on March 14th of 2000, Michael was arraigned for murder um, in a juvenile court as he was 15 years old at the time of Martha's murder. Oh, so even though he's 39 now, it's still a juvenile court it was still like a juvenile offense oh so another one of his elon classmates elon alum john higgins testified that he heard michael launch into a teary monologue about that night that ended in him saying i did it and so this is what higgins said he related that he later was in his garage and he was running through the woods he had a golf club in his hands he looked up saw pine trees The next thing he remembers is that he woke up in his house and that's the story that he related to me. Michael was crying and he said he didn't know whether he did it or not. He thought he may have done it. He didn't know what happened. Eventually he came to the point that he did do it. He must have done it. I did it. Again, like I said, this is, you know, Higgins is relaying something Michael said in this like teary monologue. So it's almost like he's talking to himself and he... At the end of the monologue, he comes to the conclusion, I did it. Yeah, that would be something that I feel like would be significant. Had he not earlier been like, hey, guess what? I'm going to get away with hashtag murder, basically. I mean, yes and no. I'm not like siding with him, but he obviously has a lot of things he's working through. And so maybe in this initial group therapy session, he's being this aggressive, cocky jerk and then later he's able to like get real, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that's an excuse. I'm just I can no, no, see I that reality. No, I I absolutely see what you mean. I just I don't know. I feel like if it was something he had not worked through yet, 
I mean, granted, this would be my reaction. It might not be someone else's reaction, so I can't necessarily base it on that. But I would just think if he hasn't really, like, come to terms with it yet, he probably, like, wouldn't talk about it in group therapy instead of being like, yeah, I'm a fucking Kennedy. I don't but know. But I don't know. I don't know. Another one of his classmates, Elizabeth Arnold, testified about what she heard Michael say in group therapy, and she said that he didn't know what happened that night. He was really drunk, and he blacked out, and he didn't know if he had done it or if his brother had done it. And then there were also some classmates who testified that they never heard Michael confess anything in group therapy, instead that he said he had no idea who did it. Then, one of Michael's boyhood friends, Andy Pugh, he said that Michael told him on the night that Martha was murdered that he climbed a tree and masturbated in it. So Andy believed that the tree Michael described was not the one outside Martha's window, but it was the tree that Martha's body was found underneath. Andy testified that Michael had told him he had liked Martha quite a bit and he had a crush on her, but Martha didn't seem interested and she wasn't as enthusiastic about this blooming romance as Michael was. I mean, I'm just, I'm still stuck on the tree thing because that makes even less sense than the earlier scenario because it's, it's not like, oh, it's the tree next to her window. It's the creepy, like, 80s teenage boy thing that... Teenage boys in the 80s, at least by what movies say, were fucking rapey and scary, and I don't like it. And it was shown as comedy. I don't trust that shit. Um, Like, Revenge of the Nerds? No. Not okay. But um, that's a whole other point. But this other tree, this would have him climbing up into random-ass tree in the backyard so he can, like, see the whole house. Is he into architecture? That's what it was. Is he jerking off at the eaves? Absolutely. That's what it was. Uh He really likes shingles on rooftops and um, patios, windows, peaks. I mean, honestly, that makes the most sense of any part of your story so far, so. I told you this is a crazy one. Yes, I can see why you could not wait to tell me. Um, so on February 1st, 2001, a judge ruled that Michael would be tried as an adult. And I'm going to read this word for word. So the reason he was being charged as an adult is because there is no available or suitable state institution designed for the care and treatment of children to which the juvenile court could commit the now 40-year-old respondent that would be suitable for his care and treatment should he be abdicated delinquent for the murder of Martha Moxley. So basically what that means is that because Michael was now 40 years old, He can't go to juvie. Like, that's not... They can't actually send him to juvie. And so they're going to try him as an adult because he's an adult. And if he gets convicted of this murder, he needs to go to jail. I feel like that's problematic because I don't know why you couldn't just, like, switch the location. Because, granted, it's murder and I think he should get a long sentence. But... I feel like if we take it to another crime, if you, like, I don't know, robbed a store when you were 14, 15, versus robbing a store at 40, you should get different terms. And I feel like just because it's, like, the trial's only happening when he's 40, I feel like the rules and stuff mostly should be the same as when the crime... I don't know. It's I don't weird. know how I feel about this. I don't either. Actually. It's a pretty complicated thing, and 
in this case, they, they ruled to try him as an adult. So prosecutors during the trial put Michael in the vicinity of the murder and painted a compelling picture of a troubled rich kid with connections who lost his temper and savagely beat his beautiful neighbor to death and then later told people in rehab that he had done it. So after a three-week trial, Michael was convicted of murdering Martha Moxley, and although there was absolutely no physical evidence that linked him to the crime, the jury heard of this, like, various incriminating statements and erratic behavior that Michael did following Martha's killing, and Michael was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison, but he continually proclaimed his innocence. I don't know how I feel about this because of the no physical evidence. Because I want it to be him. It feels like it's him being a braggadocious dick. His defense being like, I was just like being a peeping Tom. Like, uh, that's not a good defense. Like, if that's your defense, what's the, what's the real tea? But the fact of being convicted on no physical evidence, on just like circumstantial... Ooh, I I don't I don't like that. Yeah, it's all circumstantial and it's like while yes, he is like being such a dick throughout this whole thing, saying he masturbated in a tree, but also he was 15 years old, he was a kid. Maybe he really was doing that stupid shit. I mean, 15-year-olds do dumber shit. I agree. So in November 2002, Michael's attorneys challenged the conviction on several grounds including that the state excluded the five-year statute of limitations, which that was active in 1975. And they said that the prosecution prejudiced the jury during its closing argument and that the state suppressed evidence that might have led to Michael's acquittal. A five-year statute of limitations on murder? This this is in the state court, remember? Like, so this is yeah. in Connecticut. Now, no, I know, but oh my god. God. That's no longer an active thing, but it was in 75. I I mean, yeah, but I can't. It's so short. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, this is a perfect example of cases taking much longer than that to go to court. So five years, Jesus. I know. I mean, I could understand like 50, but damn. Yeah. So a few months later, environmental lawyer and former prosecutor Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is Michael's cousin published a 15,000-word essay in The Atlantic titled A Miscarriage of Justice, which he claimed that the state's case against the Skakels live-in tutor Kenneth Littleton was a lot stronger than the case they had against Michael. So he was pointing the finger at Kenneth. And then in 2006, Michael's conviction was upheld by the Connecticut Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, like the federal Supreme Court, refused to hear the case. So he's still in prison. And then in 2007, a petition to retry Michael's case was denied. So he's still in prison. And then in 2010, in September, Michael's legal team filed a new appeal that argued his trial attorney, Mickey Sherman, failed to provide competent defense. But again, it was denied in 2012. This now brings us to October 23rd, 2013, when a new trial is ordered by a Connecticut appellate judge. Judge Thomas Bishop contends that Sherman's representation, so his original um, defense attorney, his representation of Skakel was constitutionally deficient, and Bishop Judge wrote that the defense of a serious felony prosecution requires attention to detail, 
an energetic investigation, and a coherent plan of defense executed. Trial counsel's failures in each of these areas of representation were significant and ultimately fatal to a constitutionally adequate defense. So basically saying that his constitutional rights were like not upheld in, in what he, the type of defense that he received. See, I, I don't like this either. I'm just not a fan of your case (laughs) because I, I feel like of the things that he had going for him, he's a rich ass kid. Like he probably paid some good ass lawyers. So I'm like the, the retrial happening because it's being like, Oh, you weren't properly represented. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't like that that's the defense used on this case when there are so many people that are currently behind bars that had public defenders who are amazing and killing it, but so overworked that they have like six minutes to look at a case. People that are in jail because their lawyers had no time that are like, I don't know, plea. That's, that's all I have time to do. I have 200 other people to save today. Because t- no, I'm like that is where we should be looking at for this. So I don't, I agree he should have a new trial, but under those circumstances, I'm not, I'm not a fan. Well, prepare yourself because it gets worse. So at this time, Michael's conviction was vacated and he was released from prison on $1.2 million bail. And this is when he had been behind bars for more than a decade. Oh, can rich people, $1.2 million bail. Yep. So... Yes, as you were alluding to, money absolutely played a big part in in all of this. You know, if this had happened to someone less fortunate who didn't have the money and the name and all of this shit, none of this would have happened. They would still be in jail right now. I mean, honestly, even just looking at the bail system, for example, because you can be in jail and have the option to bail out before you've been tried of anything. Yeah. Like, there's... There's nothing saying you're guilty, and basically the bail system is like, if you're rich, you can be free. If you're poor, you can be in jail for no reason, or for, like, suspicion. Yeah. And you can be in jail for five years, not be able to bail yourself out, go to court, and then be like, oh, yeah, you're innocent. And then it's like, well, shit, if I was a rich person... I'd be out. I would have five years of my life. I don't like the bail system. It's fucked up. It's a lot. It's very broken. It's a very broken system. So in 2016, an attorney for Michael argued for a retrial at the Supreme Court of Connecticut, and he was actually pointing to Michael's brother Tommy as the possible murderer. The prosecution asserts that Michael's murder conviction should be reinstated. So after it was vacated... You know, obviously the prosecution is like, what the hell? He did this. Like, let's reinstate this. He's he's out of, yeah. of jail at this point. And then in July of 2016, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. published a book titled Framed, while Michael Skakel spent over a decade in prison for a murder he didn't commit. And in this book, it attempts to clear Michael's name and claimed that two Bronx teenagers who actually happened to be related to Kobe Bryant Uh, the basketball player, Uh, Kennedy says that they were the ones that were responsible for Martha's murder. However, neither men identified were charged in connection with the case, and they both deny involvement. So, like, there was nothing that, like, on record actually said they were involved. 
So on December 30th, 2016, Michael's murder conviction is reinstated by the Connecticut Supreme Court. They found that the legal representation in his 2002 trial to be competent. So they reversed their previous decision. And then on January 6th, 2017, a motion is filed by Michael's legal team to reconsider the Connecticut Supreme Court ruling. Um, Because again, like, they reinstated it, and his um, legal team is like, no, 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 please reconsider the fact that you vacated this. And then on May 4th, 2018, the Connecticut Supreme Court, in a 4-3 to ruling, reversed its decision and again vacates Michael's conviction and requests a new trial. They claimed that his original defense attorney, Sherman, should have given evidence of Michael's alibi during the 2002 trial. So this is for even a different reason. They're vacating for a different reason. Wasn't his alibi he was jerking off in a tree? No, that came out... In 2002? Yes. I'm sorry, I'm getting... What? There are so many timelines happening right now. Um, We found his butt sweat (laughs) on uh, this leaf. I mean, like, what evidence? I don't know. A broken tree branch? I mean, okay. Honestly semen but at the same time if they didn't know to collect it then they wouldn't have collected it so that's a natural thing that goes away um i don't (laughs) know so they vacated it once again and the state at this point in time has not announced if it will move forward with a retrial so as it stands michael remains free on bail once again innocent until proven guilty in the eyes of the law as if he'd never gone to trial So right now he is a completely free man. And I do realize that a lot of this focuses on Michael. And I hate that because you lose Martha in all of this. Yeah. If this becomes about Michael, his family connections, his money, and Martha's family still has no answers. Martha's mom believes that Michael did it. Now he's out on the streets. I don't like any part of your case. I mean, it was a good case. You did really great. But I don't like it at all because... I don't know, actually. I mean, he was, I think he was convicted shittily, but I don't like that he's just out, and I don't like the reasons they gave to have this retrial and shit and all that. I'm like, I don't know. I know, but I will say there's, I I hate that it's all circumstantial evidence against him. Like, there's no smoking gun in this case. And so as much as I want to believe that he did it, I'm still not convinced that he did. I mean, exactly. That's where I'm at. I'm like... But then again, what did his family bury to make me believe that he didn't do it? Because that's absolutely a factor because of all the money involved in this and the families. It's just crazy. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a shitty miscarriage of justice either way. Because on one hand, if he's guilty, well, he's been free for like 30 years on and off. So she didn't get that. On the other hand, if he's innocent, oh, he's been in jail for 15 years for a crime he didn't do. So it's a miscarriage of justice either, either way. way, just because of how long it's been. I agree. And how many, like, turns and shit. But fuck. Yeah. So that's the very twisted case of the murder of Martha Moxley. Okay. So what case did you pick? So I picked one that is actually weirdly close to me on a lot of different levels it's one that you'll know but i i don't think you'll have really a connection to it and it's the murder of dwight morgan aka 
Bicycle Bob. I mean, except for the fact that I've seen him before. I mean, he was in our the town we grew up in at Edmond. But I, I, have, so, I have ideas of where your connection lies, but I'll let you tell the listeners. So, um, first off, for listeners, his name is Dwight Morgan. Everyone knew him as Bicycle Bob, and he liked his nickname. Like, it was something he was proud of. Everyone in town knew him as that. So when I say Bicycle Bob, it's not like being mean or being derogatory in any way. Yeah, he loved his name. That was just, like, his nickname. And I used a shit ton of sources, and literally all of them, I'm not going to say what the title is, because all it all gives things away. So I used an article from KFOR Oklahoma News 4 by Jesse Wells, two articles from News 9 by Rusty Surrett, three articles from The Edmund Sun by Chris Shoro and Mark Schlachtenhaufen, an article from The Oklahoman by Tim Willert, an article from The Lost Ogle by Tony, an article from Oklahoma Legal Group by Adam Banner, waymarking.com, and then myself, me, my ears. Did you literally spend like a hundred years on this? That's like 16 sources. Uh, I know. My God. All right. <laughs> I am aware. But it's one of those things where it was huge to me and to the town we grew up in, but it's a lot of, like, local news stuff. There's not going to be any CNN articles or Wikipedia pages right. or any, like, gathered information thing. I mean, it was a lot of articles of, like, update in the case or, like, here's the court something and just piecing it all together. Totally. But, yeah, no, it was, I have a lot of tabs open on my computer. So, first off, this case and this research was a lot more rough than I initially thought it would be. Like, I teared up quite a few times during the research. It was a lot. And first off, like, to paint a picture of the scene, I have to give a background on Edmund and on Bicycle Bob. So, Edmund, it's a city in Oklahoma, a suburb of Oklahoma City, it's a town of like 80 or 90,000, but it's very bedroom community. It feels much smaller than that. I thought it was bigger. It's not actually. It's well, I think nowadays it's like 95,000. Yeah, I thought it was cl- pushing 100. I think now, but 10 years ago I think it was like 80 or 85. But I mean, it's the kind of town with like the very traditional Oklahoma downtown with like the hundred-year-old, like, one- and two-story brick buildings. I think the downtown street is brick. Like, it's just, it's that old classic, the downtown could be a downtown of a town of, like, 10,000 and look the same. Yeah. Downtown Edmond sucks. I'm just, <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It has some of the best little, like, antique and thrift antique stores, stores. mostly antique yeah. i and they have the ones where it's like you can buy this credenza for fifteen hundred dollars and then they have the ones where they're like this mug is a quarter but it's not a mug it's a teacup and it's from england in 1876 and i'm like yes see but listeners that's what i'm i'm telling you. i think like half of the stores downtown are antique stores and then like cafes it's but not fun cafes. I mean, cafes, the food's amazing. I love going there. But it's not like the Starbucks or like fun type cafe. It's like the, 
Oh, that's where old man Hendrix goes for breakfast. He's been coming here for 57 years. Every Sunday. Clearly you haven't made it to Evoke, which is a really cool coffee bar, but... I have not. Um, but anyway, Edmond is a suburb. It's more well-off of a suburb. It, it's the suburb with the reputation for the rich people. It's not the rich suburb. That's Nichols Hills. But the other side of Edmond does have like million dollar homes and things like that. And you went to school with those people. And, and it's fine. It's whatever. I didn't grow up in a million dollar home. But it's the kind of suburb where, for those of y'all from the South and Midwest, this will make a lot of sense. For those of y'all not, I, this will make no sense <laughs> to you. But it's the kind of town where you can make 60000 and feel like you're making like a hundred. Yeah. Kind of thing. Also, houses in Oklahoma are cheap. Whatever. Um, but yeah, it's a more well-off suburb. And it's not the kind of place that you would think would celebrate a homeless person. But Bicycle Bob was special. His real name, like I said earlier, was Dwight Morgan. But everyone in town knew him as Bicycle Bob. I mean, I don't think most people knew his name. Because... That's just how everyone referred to him. He was 54 years old, and he was like a symbol of the city. He was this tall, thin man. He always wore an OU hat, and he was always biking down the road or walking down the streets in downtown Edmond. And there were stories of people that knew him back from, like, the 60s. And there's just a lot of stories to tell. Basically, everyone had a story about him. Basically, he was like, a, he was part of everyone's family. Local churches and even just individuals in the city would like buy him a new bike when his was stolen. Um, he would get free breakfasts at different restaurants downtown. Uh, they'd give him lunch, dinner. He was given like food, clothing, shelter. I mean, everyone came in together to help him. He was just the sweetest, nicest guy. And he was given a lot of different opportunities over the years to move into a place or move into someone's home permanently, but he didn't want to. Yeah. He didn't want to come off the street, and he chose to live on the street and live and basically be like a physical part of the community. And people in Edmond were like, okay, we've offered him what we can. He doesn't want to, I don't know, move into the home stuff. And that's his choice. And cool. So, you know, he'd go around, get free breakfast. People would say, oh, hey, Bob, in the mornings. Just, he was a fixture in the community. And the police department took special care of him, making sure to check in on him when they're doing their rounds. In the uh, winter months, he would come, like, sometimes stay at the police station where it was warmer, especially if there was, like, bad weather. Um, sometimes the cops would do rounds and, like, bring him like dinner and stuff like i don't know i i just he was such an important part of the community and in october of 2009 he was murdered he had a spot where he slept downtown in an alleyway and it alleyway is not like the correct words it's not the kind of alleyway you think of like two tall buildings and there's like city dumpsters and stuff it's right. literally just in between two buildings yeah and that's where he had his, like, pallet, his sleeping area. He had been struck several times over the head with a hammer. 
and he'd been stabbed more than 40 times in the head and in the neck. Jesus. And one of his fingers had been cut off. So after his death, a guy in Edmond named Bryce Camp, who I think was like 20 or 21, like he was a young guy at the time, he decided to put together this impromptu candlelight memorial service at the farmer's market. And more than 400 people showed up to grieve and tell stories and share memories We also did something. I was a junior in high school at the time, and I don't know if we did anything official or if it was just like in our classes we came together and talked, Uh, but one of my friends, she was really affected. She, the previous winter, she had like, I don't know, she'd have gotten gloves or something for him, and it was just like a really important moment in her mind, and she just kept talking about how she bought him or she gave him gloves. Yeah. But the the community came together to share their stories of him. So the afternoon after his murder, because um, he was murdered at night, the next day afternoon, his body was discovered by a 20-year-old homeless man named Travis Jim, who then turned himself in for the murder. Jim um, knew Morgan and said he'd fallen asleep on the makeshift bed, the pallet, after a day of drinking, and he, like, didn't want to get up. Warren comes back, and he's like, get the fuck off my bed. Like, I mean, he wouldn't have said that. He would be like, hey, dude, you're on my stuff. Um, Apparently, then they got into a fight, and Jim said that he just attacked Morgan with a knife. Once he was on the ground, Jim said he then took a hammer, hit Morgan over the head, at least two times, just make sure he was dead. He then covers up the body, walked over to, like, a nearby Walgreens, and then just kind of walked around, was picked up by police later that day, or I guess in the middle of the night at this point, at a convenience store, but and was booked for, like, public intox, but was, like, released a couple hours later once he sobered up. Yeah. And then, after he was released, that's when... He went to the, I guess he went back to the police and told them about the murder. And after he confessed, he was arrested. But that's not where this story ends. On November 10th, so like not a month after, like a week shy of a month after, more or less, from the murder, an unidentified witness came to the police station and told police that he knew who killed Bicycle Bob, and it wasn't Travis Jim. It was a 19-year-old named Connor Mason. Which is something that opens up so many questions, and one that comes to mind for me is, was Travis just trying to get off the streets? I don't know. I think the police did not fully believe his story, because, and I'll go into it, in a little bit, but they continued their investigation and continued it kind of hard. Yeah. Even after uh, Jim confessed to it, which leads me to believe that they were not fully convinced. Right. So. Did I call him the right I name? I don't know. I said Tracy. Is it Jim Tracy? It's Travis Jim. Travis Jim. Did I? He, there's a lot of double first names here. I know, there's sorry. Connor Mason, Travis Jim, Dwight Morgan. Oh my god, everyone has double first names, actually. Ah, 
And so do we. I would say, so do we. So we know that feeling. And listeners, I go back and forth between um, calling uh, him Morgan, calling him Bicycle Bob. It's the same person I'm talking about. But yeah, so this anonymous person comes in and is like, yo, you have the wrong guy. It was Connor. So on the night of the murder, Connor leaves his apartment for about an hour. He had roommates, so they were like, oh, he was gone for an hour. And when he gets back to the apartment, he's just very excited and happy. He's just, he's on a high. He's like, whoa. He then goes to his bedroom and he pulls out a clear plastic glove from his pocket, like a doctor's glove, I imagine. And inside this glove is a human finger. So Connor had been planning this murder for months. Oh, jeez. And he had walked up to Bicycle Bob, struck him in the head with a hammer until the hammerhead flew off. Jeez. So not just once or twice, I mean violently. And then he took out his pocket knife to, quote unquote, finish him off, cut his throat to keep him from yelling out. So during this whole event, during the murder, Bicycle Bob raised up his hands and would, like, try to get up. And he was asking Connor, why are you doing this? And that was probably his last words. After the murder, Connor went back to his apartment and he was there for a little bit. But he went back to the crime scene to look for a flashlight that he'd left. And this time he was with his friend, 19-year-old Nicholas Kerr. But Kerr was mostly just the driver. I don't know why, but Connor was like, hey, drive me here. And Nicholas like, okay. But basically that's what happened. I don't know. I feel like when you're a teenager, you either ask a lot of questions or don't ask any questions. I mean, basically, I don't know. If I was 19 and my friend was like, hey, will you drive me here and sit in the car? I gotta go look for a flashlight. I'd be like, why? Drive yourself. I don't know. Maybe Connor didn't have a driver's license. I don't know. But either way, Nicholas drove him. He parked on the street and, you know, Connor goes, looks for the flashlight. And about 20 minutes later... Which is a really fucking long time. That is. Kurt gets out of the car and he's like, okay, I'm going to fucking help you look for the flashlight. And when he gets there, he sees there's this tarp and it is clearly covering something. Connor pulls back the tarp and shows him Dwight Morgan's body. And Kerr could tell that he was dead. He could see these large wounds on his neck. and But Kerr told nobody what he saw that's ridiculous you see a dead body even if your friend did it like you tell someone my god you call the fucking police also if this is downtown edmund it's not far from the police station i mean no it's literally like three blocks away we all talk about you know like oh you know if so-and-so friend killed someone i'd help them hide the body no you don't you turn them in like yeah because even if it's something that was justified it is better not trying to hide it because you're going to get caught. Yeah. I would not be a good member of the the group in How to Get Away with Murder because I would be like, guys, we can just go to the police. We could be like, he attacked us and we pushed him over the railing. 
and then we're fine and don't have to go through six seasons of they're gonna catch us the fbi is on to us because we burned the body because you did you did so i'm just saying well and that's when you become an accessory to murder you know you, yeah. you help do any type of hiding you're now just as guilty so you know just saying <laughs> Hopefully, you never have this experience where your friend has murdered someone and you have to decide what to do, but your decision should be, turn them in. Exactly. I mean, that's how it goes from how to get away from being attacked and defending yourself to how to get away with murder. So, the finger. Connor had cut off Bicycle Bob's finger, and he gave it to his girlfriend. First, he, like, showed it around to friends as a trophy and literally, like, he just showed it around. It was his trophy. He eventually gave it to his girlfriend, 19-year-old Heather Parker. And I think she was into it. She did throw it away or dispose of it in some way. But I think it wasn't like a, oh my god, what the fuck, I have to throw this away. And also, she knew about the murder. I mean, he told her they were together. She also didn't tell anyone or go to the police. He is a dumb criminal. He's like one of those dumb criminals who's just like waving this finger around, basically telling anyone who will listen that he did this. Exactly. And that's why one of his friends, someone he told and who saw the finger, went to the police. And the report I saw, or the news story I saw, it said it was like anonymous. There were a couple names I saw later. I didn't know if it was the same person. So I just kept it like unnamed friend. But yeah, his friend went to the police on the 10th and was like, um, this dude's the killer. He has the finger in a glove. And so Connor Mason was arrested for first degree murder. And Heather Parker, his girlfriend, and Nicholas Kerr, his friend who saw the body, didn't report it, were both arrested for accessory to murder after the fact. And at this point, the charges against Travis Jim, uh, the 20-year-old homeless man who confessed to it earlier... They were dropped and he was released. I mean, he basically, he'd made up the story. Prosecutors then struck a deal with Kerr, and Kerr agreed to testify against Connor at trial. Yeah. Kerr led them to a knife, to this pocket knife or kitchen knife. I've read in other sources, I'm not sure, I think it was just pocket knife, that Connor used to stab Bicycle Bob to death. And this knife had been tossed into a lake. It was the murder weapon. I don't know if it's Lake Arcadia. It said, like, a local town lake. That's the only one I can think of. Really hope not. I don't know what another option would be, but just saying, I don't like it. But Connor had told Kerr that the tip of the knife had broken during the stabbing because he was stabbing him in the skull. Jeez. So the tip broke off. And when investigators, police, when Kerr led them to where Connor said he, like, disposed of the knife, it was missing its tip. And so they exhumed Bicycle Bob's body, looked through it, and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation wound up matching metal pieces that had been recovered from his body to this broken knife. That is crazy. Like, you know, it's almost as if, I, I wonder... If Connor hadn't have said that to Kerr, that like, oh, the tip of the knife broke off, 
would that have been something they looked for? I mean, probably. So, like, even if he had just told Kerr, like, where he disposed of the weapon and they found it and it was missing the tip, I bet they still would have exhumed the body. But the fact that he told Kerr and then Kerr told the police, like, that just read, led them straight to him. Oh, yeah. And I think that the defense that Connor was trying to do was that, like, he didn't murder him. He just, like, found the finger and was, like, lying and stuff. And so this was the piece that could link him, like, no, 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 this is your knife. You know, we have video of you buying it from Academy or whatever a couple weeks ago. And it's, you know, your friend led us here to your knife. Like, I think this piece was was really important because it was kind of the physical evidence to it. This was the smoking gun in your case. Yeah. the smoking knife. Yeah. So, Nicholas Kerr was charged with being an accessory after the fact. He pled guilty, and he was given a 10-year deferred sentence. So, what exactly is a deferred sentence? So, it's kind of like a discretionary sentence. Like, you're given probation, and you have to complete it, or you have to complete some something. And then, after that, the judge can, like toss the sentence out so basically it's like 10 years of jail time you don't have to go immediately you do have to do some kind of punishment but if you complete that that can replace this 10-year sentence so essentially it's a sentence that you don't necessarily have to serve if you do something yeah so that'd be that would make sense why it was used as a plea bargain Heather Parker, his girlfriend, the one he gave the fucking finger to, was given a five-month deferred sentence in 2010, and her charge was obstructing an officer. And basically, this is because she got rid of the finger and for also not telling police about the murder. Yeah. So she was just told about it and, like, threw the finger away, whereas Kerr was literally like, saw the body, drove him there. There are also other things that, like, maybe Kerr drove him to it to the do the murder. I don't know. Right. It's, there was some conflicting sources. But, so basically she got a five-month deferred sentence. In December of 2012, a judge sentenced Connor Mason to life with the possibility of parole and said that he would serve about 66 years in prison. One year later, though... In December of 2013, a judge, I don't know if it's the same one, agreed to reduce his sentence because Connor had, like, found Jesus in prison or something stupid like that. I'm sorry, that doesn't, like, like, that's good for the prisoner, but that doesn't change what they did. No, and I'm like, okay, I, I am all about, like, prisoner rehabilitation, that's what our prison should be, but, like... People who find Jesus do bad things all the fucking time. That is not a reason to reduce someone's prison sentence. If he had, I don't know, volunteered for, like, a women's center, you know, something that, like, actually shows rehabilitation, maybe looking at a sentence, sure, okay. But just, like, I don't know, reading the Bible... No. Well, and the thing is, is I feel like that is something that should benefit him for, like, his first parole hearing. Like, so he can have, you know, like, hey, I'm changed. Like, I Mm -hmm. am guilty of what I did. I accept that. Blah, Like, all of that. 
that would make sense. And I could very much see how finding Jesus could play into that being what he says at a parole hearing. But a year later, like, come on. I feel like this kid just juped you. I mean, yeah, no. And I also am like, find Jesus. Cool. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to find Jesus and start like, uh, hey, prisoners, let's get together and let's like support making clothes for homeless people? Awesome. Or are you just going to be like, hey, y'all, I found Jesus. I'm good to go. Because no, that don't cut it, bitch. Yeah. That don't do anything for anyone. Yeah, I just don't feel like that's enough. Like, that's a positive step for him. But show me why that matters. Exactly. Also, still need to follow the process. He needs to serve time for what he did. Yeah. And his his sentence was reduced. It's still life with parole. But now he will be eligible for release at the age of 54, which is the exact same age that Bicycle Bob was at the time of his death. Now I have a weird connection that comes to the case that goes a lot deeper than just it happening to in the town that I grew up in. And this is kind of why I was like, oh, I have a connection to this. Yeah. Again, this all happened when I was 16. I was in my junior year of high school. And my best friend at the time had been dating this guy who was like 19. He was awesome. Love him. He's a wonderful guy. And... The previous year, my sophomore year when I was 15, I had come out of the closet and in like July of 2009, so the summer between uh, sophomore and junior year of high school, also about three months before the murder, my best friend's boyfriend tried to set me up on a date with one of his friends, with friend is a strong word, with a guy he knew who happened to be bi, and that guy was Connor fucking Mason. I'm so glad you didn't go. Uh, Oh, yes. Spoiler alert, listeners. Tyler did not go on a date with a murderer. Um, Well, I thought about it. And, you know, he and I talked a little bit. But I was a superficial bitch back then. And was like, ooh, I don't think I'm going to. He has, like, really long hair and is, like, unkempt and... I just don't think he's attractive enough. Also, remember, like, when I was 16, I was the epitome of, like, pizza face. Oh, so, like, Tyler. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm not wrong. Freddie says, oh. Because it's true. No, I mean, like, it sucks. Puberty. I mean, we got bad skin, and then I learned how to wash my fucking face in my 20s. Yes, and puberty hit us hard. It did. Puberty was... Puberty wasn't like a punch to the face. It was like I tripped in front of a truck. But <laughs> Well, and I will say, um, puberty hits everyone in a different way, and it's a shitty way for us all. I mean, being a teenager is literally the worst fucking time of your life. It's the best You're and like, the worst. You're like, I have all these feelings I've never felt before, and I don't understand them, and I'm angry about them, <laughs> and I'm angry about everything for no fucking reason, and also, like, my clothes are fitting weird, and they <laughs> fit weird, like, two, they fit fine, like, two weeks ago, and now I'm just weirdly proportioned, I'm a fucking weirdo, and there's hair in places, <laughs> and I don't know, and uh, Puberty. Literally, puberty. Y'all. I mean, all of you know, because I assume all our listeners have gone through puberty. If you haven't, I mean, please stop listening now. You made it very far into this episode, (laughs) but like, listen to 
I don't know, not this. Not murder. Um, But also, just saying, for those of y'all who say your teenage years were the best years, you're clearly not in your 30s yet, because 30s fucking rock. Just gonna say it. Tyler, you're not there yet either. Just wait. Uh, No, I know. 20s are... They've, Your 20s are rough. They're rough, guys. <laughs> 20s are rough. We won't go into there. I've had enough wine. We could spiral at this point, but we won't. I mean, you you start your 20s, like, not being able to legally drink. You end your 20s, and your life could be in so many absolute different areas when you're 29 that I don't even want to begin the list of things. But, you know, 20s are rough. It's where you learn how to be an adult. And your 30s are where you learn to appreciate being an adult. That is literally what I've heard from every single person who is, like, in their 30s or past, like, previous bosses, co-workers. They're like, yo, you think that, like, the highs you have in your 20s, you're like, yeah, this is my time. And then you hit your 30s and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. That was cool sometimes. This is my time. 100%. I'm 32 and proud. And let me tell y'all. The best years of my life have been the last three. I'm 26, and sometimes people look at me like I should have a fucking pacifier in my mouth and a bib. Where is your bib, by the way? Did you forget it? You were drooling a little bit. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's um, it's in the wash. It's a bib that says, like, fuck bitches get money and has floral arrangements on it. You know, uh-huh. like things you buy for babies. <laughs> also, side note before I jump back in, so very quick side note. But can we talk for a second about how fucking gross the baby onesies are that are like, I suck on boobs every day. Yes, yeah, Or like get it. the gross like sexual baby onesie. I fucking hate it. That's disgusting. It's a baby. That's a, <laughs> that's a baby. It's a baby. Stop. And also breastfeeding should not be sexualized. It's it's literally no, it's like a literally beautiful food. thing. It's food and it's beautiful and it's a mom like nourishing their child or even, you know, bottle feeding. It's nourishment of a child. Like let's not talk about yeah. sucking boobs. I mean, it no. It literally is is fucking feeding a child. If you think feeding a child is sexy, you need to go you need talk to, to go someone. to therapy. You need to talk to someone. Because that is the same as you see someone being like, No, airplane, eat the peaches and being like, Oh fuck yeah. No, that's that's off. Stop. You need to talk to a therapist. Stop. Oh my god, airplane, eat the peaches. <laughs> I don't know. But also I just hate you know, ladies man. I just, it's gross. Don't get your baby a fucking onesie that's like plaid or has like an elephant on it. I don't care. Or says, I love my mommy. Not a gross ass statement. Side note to the side note, I don't even like when I see fucking adults with shirts like that. It's like, the only thing that would make this better is a beer and seeing tits. Like, go fuck yourself. Literally just wear a shirt. Yeah, it's pretty Why do you have to be disgusting and gross? Okay. That is my double side um, tangent, whatever. Anyways, I was a pizza face when I was 16, and I was like, ew, he's not attractive enough as I look in the mirror and resemble a red Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I've never seen the Star Wars, but. The, wait, oh my um, God, the Star Wars. Okay. 
All right. Do you also use <laughs> the Facebook? <laughs> okay, listen. <laughs> I may be 26, but I'm not necessarily not 84. 26 going on 84. As long as I'm be played by Jennifer Garner, I'm down with it. But anyway, I'm like, he's not cute enough for me. And as it turns out, normally being superficial, not a good thing. I mean, attraction is important. Physical attraction is important. Anyone who says, like, it's only on the inside that counts, they're lying. Like, physical attraction is really fucking important. And I will say, I truly, truly believe that everyone in the world is attractive to someone else in the world. Like... Everyone has a type because you know when you have your friends and they're like, oh my God, look at him. He's so hot. In your head, you're like, oh fuck, no. But your friend thinks that person is hot. And so let them have their mm-hmm. taste. Like, let them have that. And I, I just truly believe that, like, there's not pretty and ugly or beautiful and attractive. They're, I mean, everyone is attractive to someone. You just get, you just no, gotta find absolutely. that person. Like, True. I just I know like me and my best friend have very very different tastes in men and a lot of the men that um I'm like oh yeah she's like no and then vice versa so no I think she and I have the same taste basically <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> which but it's honestly perfect though because when we both go out together it's very rare when we're both like that one rare no and I I also think though as kind of an addition to this that subconsciously someone's personality does bleed into their physical appearance someone or at least like you recognize it because i feel like someone who's really physically attractive but they're just the fucking worst they're an asshole you fucking hate being around them that's when you start being like honestly their teeth are shit their hairline basically goes all the way to their shoulder blades (laughs) like i i cannot stand them no honestly this is a fucking like troll looking at me when it's like yeah i know if you saw a picture of someone who looked like that you never met this person you'd be like he's so fucking hot but i just feel like someone's personality and then the other way you you know i feel like you get a picture of someone who's like you know whatever and then they're like super awesome the coolest person you're like no they're fucking like hey i totally agree personality it like Personality is more important than attractiveness, but attractiveness plays a role. But when you're more into someone's personality, you're more into their looks. Like, it just works out that way. Yes. And also, I'm just, like, trying to make myself feel better. Because on one hand, I was either just being superficial and being like, I'm so hot, not him, I'll wait for the next one. Or on the other hand, I could be like, you know, no, subconsciously I saw there was something wrong with that. It's not true, but it makes me feel better. In the end, though, being superficial and just caring about how cute he was and how cute I'd look on his shoulder, that kept me from going on a date with someone who was planning to murder. Because he'd been planning this murder since, like, May. That's what's the scariest part about this, is that he was planning it at the time. Like, this is all, like, very terrifying to me, and I'm so... So glad you weren't like, let me give this guy a chance. I- I'm glad in this moment in time, you were just like, absolutely not, not interested. If I had said yes, I could have gotten a finger as a present. You could have been accessory I... to murder. No, you wouldn't have been because you would have turned him in. But No, because I would have been like, um, hi, Mr. Officer, here's a finger. Do what you will. 
I think there's a body attached to it somewhere. There is somewhere. But I don't no, know if I it's mean, dead or alive, but here's the finger. Uh, yeah. So, but just the fact that literally I had a decision to be like, yeah, I'll go out with you. Or, no, I won't. And I said no, and had I said yes, three months later, that guy is fucking murdering literally like a town hero. Oh, fuck no. It's such a terrifying connection. And I hate that you have to live with knowing that that connection was a possibility. Yeah. Like, that's almost as horrifying as if you had actually met him and, like, even just had coffee, you know? Yeah, well, I remember the only person I could really talk about it with was my AP U.S. history teacher at the time. Because, like, three years before, he had been one of her students. And so she and I, like, had sit down over coffee. I was also her teacher's aide senior year. So we had sit down talks about this whole event and our personal connections to it. Because I think she had, like, he wasn't just her student. I think she had, like, personally tutored him or or something. It was a fucking lot, y'all. I'm glad you had her to talk to. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I had friends I could tell, and they were like, oh my god, that's crazy. I couldn't really talk to my friend's boyfriend, because he was really close, and he was going through the, I thought I knew this person, right. kind of. And that, I'm like, I can be here for you, but I'm not going to be like, also remember when you tried to set us up? What if I was killed? Like, that's not... No, he didn't You know, I don't blame him at all. No, he didn't know. He he was in the, like, I had no idea. But yeah, no, I had uh, my teacher to talk to. And she's awesome. We're still Facebook friends to this day. But I want to end this going back to something that's a little more uplifting and just brings it all back to the important person in the story, who is Bicycle Bob. And again, just hits on how much he was loved by the community. To my knowledge, he didn't have any family. I didn't know of any. I could, didn't find any in the research. But basically, all of Edmund was his family. After his death, the First Christian Church held a memorial service, and hundreds of people showed up to pay their respects for him. His friend, Darla Laughlin, she had known him for like 14 years she lived in Edmond she donated a headstone to commemorate his life and honor him and his headstone is engraved with both of his names Dwight Morgan and Bicycle Bob as well as a um, engraved image of like his pride and joy his bicycle and to this day people who visit the grave will sometimes leave little toy bicycles for the man that was basically everyone's family member. That's really sweet. But that is the story of the murder of Dwight Morgan, a.k.a. Bicycle Bob. Alright, that was intense. Are you um, are you ready for postmortem? I think I am. I still have a lot of wine left. Again, I don't know if I've already had a bottle. I don't know if I've had, like, one glass. That's for you to decide. Vote on our Instagram now. No. Um, You've had we won't more than one that. glass, that's for sure. Listen, 
you're no who who can never be sure but yes postmortem so i'll just start us off with we both okay both of these cases are really intense i will start off with that point but i will say i want to take a step back because i think a lot of the intensity in yours is the personal connection you had to it now of course like someone who is a fixture in the community who was murdered and the way it was done is extremely brutal and like the finger is crazy but the case of martha moxley is something where you and i both are still not 100 percent sure if michael is guilty or innocent he's currently free at the time there's the kennedy connection which just like adds to just the insanity of this there's all the money and also the fact that at this moment in time, Martha's case is technically unsolved. I mean, I I still, I mean, remember my case, he was so brutally attacked with a hammer and beat with it, the head flew off, and then stabbed 40 times in the head and in the neck to the point where the knife broke, like a new knife, not... Not an old one that chips. I mean, this is... Yeah, but don't you remember that Martha was attacked with a golf club that broke in half, and then half of it was stabbed in her neck? I mean, okay, that's like a I, steel uh, no. golf club. No, you're right. And what it comes down to at this moment, to be completely honest, we've never had this happen, but we almost have to look at how we're analyzing intensity. Are we analyzing it by the case and the facts, or is it something that is more of like an emotional connection that we have for the case? How do we define intensity? Because I think mine has more of the facts that are intense in this case, and yours has a, an emotional connection because of you personally. Yeah, I I can absolutely see where you're coming from. And for the podcast, I agree with you. I think my main issue with yours is a lot of the stuff that you described as intense or the important details of your case. I don't like and really don't, not I don't care about, but I wish they weren't such a big thing. Like, he's wealthy, so all this, or, you know, all these things. I'm like, so, so fucking what? Like, you know, why does... Why is the this case bigger because there's money and there's the family name connection? But the reality is, it is bigger. I mean, I think, again, with your case, like we talked about earlier, the fact that regardless of the conclusion, whether he is found guilty, whether he is found not guilty, either way comes with its own huge dose of injustice for him or for the family. There's no happy ending basically left. Yeah, and... Honestly, the way I look at it, I agree. I hate that, like, money's a factor in this and that, you know, that his family could continuously push and help reopen and hire the private investigators and that he was a Kennedy. And so Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote the article and then the book. But I would argue that that makes it more intense because this is our system. This is the system that is the reality in our world and whether or not we disagree with how shitty that is and how that shouldn't be the system it is i completely agree it is more intense also if y'all hear some gross clugging sounds i'm like shaking the end of the bag and trying to 
<laughs> I'm trying to be like somber about it, but I'm also shaking the end of the bottle of wine like I am a six-year-old who got into the bag of mini wheats and is trying to shake out the last bits of broken off frosting. So bear with me. Did do you ever take it out of the box so you can squeeze the last rem- remnants of wine? Because that's what I always do. I mean, same, but it would have just been really loud and you were making a really good point. So I didn't want to be like, (laughs) no, totally. Kurt! You know, I think that her murder was more intense. Kurt! You know, the sound of tearing cardboard. Also, can we talk about the fact that there are like six millimeters to the top of your glass left and where your wine is introduced? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I just realized... That you can actually see the top of my glass uh-huh. in the camera. Yeah, no. And yes, I mean, it's a big, like, probably a 20 ounce glass. It's okay, listeners. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're take- She's taking the picture. It'll be on Instagram. Yep. <laughs> but uh, it's it's almost to the top. Listen, <laughs> uh, we have a murder mini to record after this, and I just want to be ready. Also, what is the point of a Boda Box if you have one glass left? Nothing. I emptied it. The full bottle is in the glass. Did I have to sip off the top so it didn't, like, overflow? I did. Do I care? No. But regardless of the postmortem, of the cases, of the intensity of it all, I have conferred with the council. I have met with the leaders. And we have come to the conclusion that Brittany... Your case is more intense. All right. Thank you for that really... Here is your rose. thank you. Thank you for the rose. I like roses. Oh, God, a red one. Excuse me. I prefer peach. Um, Okay. I'm just saying, though, side note, you can get an 18 flower bouquet of roses at Trader Joe's for like $9. If you didn't know that... Now you know. Know it now. And buy the fucking person you love roses or like buy your parent roses. Buy your friend at work roses. Buy yourself People roses. People love fucking roses. Buy yourself roses. Do you know how fucking great it feels to get flowers? No one has ever bought me flowers. It's fine. I don't cry at night about it most of the nights. But I'm just saying, gifts from your friends are fucking amazing. I literally came from a very stressful meeting today. That my friend didn't even know I was in this meeting, or it was stressful, or whatever. But I came back to my desk, and I she just there was a Starbucks cup that she'd she'd gotten me a Starbucks on the way into work, and she put it on my desk. And so when I came back from this meeting, I had a Starbucks, and I was like, "Oh my god, bitch, I love you!" And so I pinged her. Um, That's really sweet. It's so fucking sweet. And if someone literally, if I came into work and someone was like, here, I got you flowers, I would probably cry. Just saying. And then people would be like, are y'all dating? Or did someone die? Depending on the flowers. If they're peonies, someone died. They're roses, we're going out. <laughs> oh. If they're chrysanthemums, both. <laughs> I know. It's difficult to know. Um, But yes, buy me flowers basically is all I ask. You can pick the topic for next week. I will let that happen. I'm literally watching you drink this wine, and it's hilarious. Um, Do you need a straw? I wouldn't mind it. It's for protecting my teeth, because I'm 38, and I read Women's Health. Okay, well, also just brush your teeth after or get the wine wipes. They're totally a thing. 
And True. listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you liked what you heard, if you loved learning that Tyler has a connection to a murderer and fills his wine glasses to the very tip top, let us know. Oh, they already knew the second yeah, they part. Did. If you want to see what other murder I have a connection to, like and comment below, and I will have to think really hard if I share that story. But write and review us, you guys. Your five-star reviews really help us. Um, people know about us. It gets the word out there. Tell your friends. Rate and review on the platform. Rate and review in real life. So when you say rate and review in real life, do you mean like leave some bathroom graffiti about <laughs> us? Because I'm all about I'm it. all about that. I am all about it. If I go into a public bathroom and I'm sitting there doing my thing in the stall and I see a review that's like, y'all, Brittany and Tyler are some of my favorite podcast hosts. The wine they bring, the cases they bring, informative, funny, bad bitches, I want to be their friend. First off, you are a friend. Second off, if I read that on the back door of a stall, I'm also weirdly imagining this in like a dimly lit gay bar. Anyway, <laughs> oh, um, I, uh, yes, I, if you leave your like Insta handle or something, I will send you flowers. That is my promise to you. Love it. Also, sort of related, partially not. Make sure to like and follow us on all of our social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, check out our website. If you see that t-shirt and that tote in our merch store and you're like, ooh, those are nice, maybe consider buying them. Maybe consider checking out Patreon and becoming a Nero Diavola Cosa Nostra is what it is, probably. Um, because you could get that. And then you could also get access to all of our murder minis, all of our bottle talks, directing an episode, all the other benefits mentioned in the Patreon thing a thing. So I'm just saying, check it out. Worth a look, y'all. Worth a look. Absolutely. And thank y'all so, so much for tuning in, for listening to this episode. Hope y'all loved it. This is Blood and Wine, signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.